0: We are starting a new series today and uh, you've come on a good week because this series is one that will take us through at least the next two months um, and possibly even a little bit longer than that um, because we're going to spend the next while talking through the book of James and uh, it is an incredible book. I've spent a bit of time, Just get my cables sorted here, sorry, I've spent a bit of time reading it and working through it um, over the last couple of months as we've been preparing for this series. And um, if you haven't looked at it recently, uh, if you haven't read it before, um, if you have, you've heard a series preached on it, um, this will be an awesome opportunity uh, for all of us to, as we open God's Word, regardless of how unfamiliar or how familiar it is, to allow the Holy Spirit to really reveal more of who God is, more of his character, more of his nature, and more of his design for us to live. And so we've called um, this series, you'll see it on the screen, A Blueprint for Living Faith. One of the questions that often comes up for people who have been Christians, whether it's for a month or for 25 years, is how should I actually live? How should my knowledge and my understanding of who God is um, actually shape my day-to-day? How should it look different? And we're going to work through this um, because the message of the book of James is really quite simple. I'm going to give it to you now. All right. I'm not going to wait for the great reveal in like eight weeks time. I'm giving it to you up front and we'll give it to you over and over again because the message is really, really simple. There is one central theme to it. And it is that people who know Christ should act like they know Christ. It's quite simple, isn't it? People who know Christ who have encountered Christ, who have discovered a new way of living should live in a new way. Our thoughts, our actions, the fruit of our lives should look different because we know Christ, because we have received him as our Lord and Savior and because we have entered into his family. And so James, throughout his book that we're going to look at, implores us, each one of us, into a new way of living. He implores each one of us into loving what we know is true. And that can be a really hard thing, can't it? There's something incredible about watching um, children develop. A number of you are parents or you've got um, nephews and nieces. And as I always say, and very sincerely, that... um, all of you who call Horizon Home really are like aunties and uncles for my children because they spend so much time here. They probably, as I particularly, expect you to pick him up. Um, they, you know, I'm sure some of you have wiped their runny noses and cuddled them when they've cried. And so we are so grateful, Cindy and I are so grateful for that. And I know a lot of other families feel the same. But one of the consequences of being around small children and being around their parents is the litany of um, videos and of photos and of little um, quotes that they will share with you. I am totally guilty of it. Um, I have, I'm sure, and I've seen a number of your eyes over over time as I've said, oh, look at this cute photo, or look at what they did this week. And you're like, oh, wow, they ate a piece of corn. Fantastic. That's so exciting. We're so pleased. But we see, and there's a lot of excitement, isn't there, in the development of children. We really enjoy watching children grow, watching them experience new things. A couple of weeks ago, Judah was sitting next to me at the table and I was doing some work and he was there with a piece of paper and a pen. Um, And he started just writing these sentences. And so he was writing out, and I looked over at what he was doing because as of, I, like seriously, six or seven weeks ago, his writing was just scribbles on a page. He, he liked the idea of it, but he couldn't actually do it. And so I looked over, and he was actually writing words. He, he wrote a sentence that said, Sam the cat is fat. Um, poor Sam. But he wrote that sentence. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. So I called Cindy, and she came in, and we all created a big fuss. But the thing is... As exciting as that was for us now, when Judah is 15, I don't still want him to be writing, Sam, the cat is fat. I want him to have developed further. I want him to have grown. I want him to be writing about more significant things. You see, growth is a natural way of life. As um, As we develop, we should be growing. And it's true for our physical lives, but it's also true for our spiritual lives. You see, our physical lives start with a birth. But our spiritual lives also start with the new birth. Over in uh, John's Gospel, and don't worry about turning there, we are actually going to get to James, don't worry, I'm just doing a long intro, so just buckle yourselves in. But over in John's Gospel, Jesus is having this discussion with one of the prominent religious leaders of the day named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus um, comes to him, comes to Jesus under the cover of night, and he's trying to work out who Jesus really is. He's trying to explore that. And Jesus says to Nicodemus that if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, he says to him, you must be born again. And they have this conversation with Nicodemus trying to understand what it means to be born again. And there's quite a comical kind of exchange if you have a look back at it at some point. You see, the new birth is not just mentioned there. But Peter picks up on it in 1 Peter chapter 1, 23, when he says, You have been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. You see, just as our physical lives begin with a birth, so do our spiritual lives. But that is only the start. Just as we expect babies to grow after birth, they have to go for regular checkups. They may get measured and they get weighed. They get poked and they get prodded. Um, We expect them to be growing. But just like they are growing, um, we should be growing too as we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior. And I think the thing that sometimes worries me is that we think about spiritual growth as like an incredible thing for an individual. So we see someone and we go, wow, they're really growing Haven't you seen them develop in their faith? How amazing is that? And it's almost like that's the odd occurrence, that that growth in that person, which should be, you know, encouraged and should be, um, we should be excited about it. But it's almost as if that's the odd occurrence and spiritual growth shouldn't be an odd occurrence. It should be a given. It should be something that each of us is pursuing because it is part of the Christian life. You see, I imagine some of you, as you grew up, um, you probably had your parents drag you into the kitchen at various intervals and stand you up against the pantry door or against a wall or whatever and measure your height and mark it out. Um, I guess if your parents discover that at the age of three and four and five and six, you weren't getting any taller, they would have done something about it. They would have been worried about it. You see, physical growth is good because it kind of, you go to bed one night, you don't Intend. Like, I've never heard of anyone going to to bed and just thinking, oh, I'm going to grow a bit tonight, and then trying really, really hard uh, to grow. It doesn't happen like that. It just kind of happens as we uh, nourish ourselves. But spiritual growth is different because it needs to be intentional. We need to be intentional about it. Charles Spurgeon, a very famous preacher, said this In the church of God, there are children who are 70 years old. Yes, little children displaying all the infirmities of declining years. It is not a pleasant sight to see gray-headed babies, yet I must confess I have seen such. One would not like to say of a man of 80 that he had scarcely cut his wisdom teeth, and yet there are such, scarcely out of the nurse's arms at 60 years of age. Spurgeon had a way with words, didn't he? If I said that, you'd all be angry at me. On the other hand, it's not me, it's Spurgeon, blame him. On the other hand, there are fathers in the church of God, wise, stable, instructed, who are comparatively young. The Lord can, grow, can cause his people to grow rapidly and far outstrip their years. And so it, fo- it flows on, doesn't it? It follows naturally that as we uh, live the Christian life, that we need to be intentional about pursuing growth. I've heard people complain um, and particularly complain about their church. When people hear that you're a minister, they feel like they can kind of, Um, dish on their own church Um, and so I've heard people complain not about this church mind you I'm you know none of you I'm talking about but they say I go along to church on a Sunday morning Um, I'm just not being fed I'm just not growing now you might have said that I'm sure I've said that at times it's the natural kind of response to frustration or or when we feel a little bit stagnant in our faith we will say oh I just feel I'm not growing But while your involvement in church is an essential part of the Christian life, and that's not a pastor saying it, that's what God's word says, it's an essential part of the Christian life. While it's essential, it is not the one time each week where you should be getting nourished. You see, that would be like a five-year-old saying, uh, only eating once a week and saying, I just don't know why I'm not growing. We would think that was crazy, wouldn't we? And so each one of us has this responsibility uh, empowered and equipped and encouraged by the body, the the fellowship, the family of Christ, the people around us, by our connect groups, by the people that are mentors and and have got good relationships to us. Um, We we are responsible for encouraging, but each one of us is responsible for pursuing spiritual growth. And so we're going to get into the book uh, this morning Um, And so if you turn to the book of James, you probably turned there 15 minutes ago, but here we go. Your fingers going numb. You've got it in the page, but here we go. So James chapter one, and we're going to work our way through the first eight verses this morning. And so it says this, this letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad. Greetings. When we um, begin these book series, and we like to do at least one a year, sometimes we do more, um, we like to talk about the author. It's kind of an important place to start, isn't it? Um, And I'm guilty of that because I'm an English teacher. So not just a teacher, but an English teacher. So we like to understand authors. Um, But the the author of the book of James is, um, unsurprisingly, someone named James. Um, And he gives us a little bit of an indication. He describes himself at the start, start, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Virtually every New Testament scholar um, and commentator um, is convinced that this is not the disciple James. You see, the disciple James is believed to have died prior to this being written. It's not the disciple James. Instead, this letter is written by James, who was the half brother of Jesus. And so it's an interesting um, person, an interesting perspective. We know that uh, Mary and Joseph, after the immaculate conception um, of of Jesus Christ, we know that they went on to have other children. Now, if that's new to you, if you look at Matthew 13, um, in verse 58, when Jesus is teaching in his hometown of Nazareth, the people begin to question who he is. They begin to challenge who he is. And they say, where does he get this wisdom? Where does he get this power to do miracles? And then they scoffed at him and they said, he's just the carpenter's son. And we know Mary, so we know his parents, his mother. Uh, We know his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon and Judas. And all his sisters live right here amongst us. Where did he learn these things? And so we know that James is the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. We know, too, that based on the way that they would list names um, in these texts, that James was the most likely the next born child of, or the next born son, at least, of Mary and Joseph. Um, And so imagine, and I was thinking about this as I was writing this sermon a few weeks ago, imagine having a perfect older brother. Now, I I didn't have to experience that. Um, (laughs) And I don't think any of you did either. But imagine having a perfect older brother. How annoying would that be? While you're living your life, while you're messing up, or you're working things out, um, particularly in those teenage years, um, you know, here's Jesus who has always got a tidy room, who is always eating his vegetables, who is always doing exactly what Mary and Joseph ask him uh, straight away. It kind of sounds the dream, doesn't it? Unless... You are the brother that is the next oldest and you're being compared. And now this older brother of yours is out in the streets, in your hometown, telling everyone that he is the son of God, telling everyone that he came to set them free, that he is the one that was prophesied and foretold, that he is out there, that he is breaking the religious laws, that he is healing people on the Sabbath, that he's doing all these things. And I don't know what reaction James had. But I wonder if he was angry. I wonder if he was jealous. Because in Mark 3, we read uh, again that um, Jesus is out with his disciples and there's so much going on that they haven't even had time to eat. And um, the family family gather around and they say this. They try to take Jesus away because they, they think there's something wrong. And they actually say these words, he's out of his mind. He's out of his mind. And they try to drag Jesus off. You see, James, it's documented over in John 7 uh, that his brothers didn't believe in him. They didn't believe the words that he was saying. But something startling happens to James because during Jesus' ministry, James doesn't accept that Jesus is who he says he is. But something startling happens because over in Acts 1, we read that James has gathered together with the other believers. We then read by Acts 15 that James is effectively the head of the early church in Jerusalem. We get some insight into what occurred because over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, um, when we're told about the resurrected Jesus, we're told that he goes after he's been resurrected. He goes and he meets with his half brother, James. And it's perhaps in this moment, we don't know, but it's perhaps in this moment that James, once the critic, once the skeptic, once the one who thought that Jesus was out of his mind, um, is totally changed. He's totally transformed. He's not lukewarm. He's not suss about it still. He goes from being a skeptic to being completely changed. And there's something remarkable then about the way he opens this letter because if it was me and I know the way I am, I would have said James, half-brother of Jesus Christ. I would have felt that that would have given me some credibility, some legitimacy that people would have actually read what I had to say. But he doesn't, does he? He writes, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this letter is written by a man who is uh, not pumping himself up, not putting himself out there as the half-brother of Jesus, but a man who knows the full depth and the full extent of a transformed life. And that's why for us, we can see that the message of that comes through this letter over and over and over again. One person wrote that effectively James is saying, this is what Christianity really looks like. This is what it really looks like. Don't settle for a fake or a placebo Christianity. You see, James knew a life transformed and he wants each one of us to know it too. And so he picks up in verse two and he writes this, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. You see, there's no ifs and buts here. I like the fact that James just gets straight to business. He doesn't say if you have troubles. He doesn't say if you have trials. He says when these things come, because they will come. He doesn't also say just grit your teeth and bear it. Just hold on tight and try and get through it. He says very clearly that when these things come, consider it an opportunity for great joy. That's a bit confusing. It seems kind of contradictory, doesn't it? Because we can easily read that and think that as Christians, we should walk through life, um, spend our time grinning, even when things are going wrong. It's almost like that caricature of the Christian who just ignores the reality of life, who just pretends that it's not, ha- is not happening and waltzes through everything, grinning and smiling, you know, kind of while their house is burning behind them and their car's destroyed and everything's going terrible. And they're just saying, no, God is good. God is good. He's not telling us to pretend. He's not telling us to fake it. He's saying that when these things come, There is a reason to be joyful. You can be joyful, but there is also a reason to be joyful. That when troubles and trials come your way, when you are faced with challenges that you don't think you can bear, that God through them is developing your faith so that you'll be able to endure. He's strengthening and deeping your knowledge, your understanding of him, so that as life continues, that you'll be able to go the distance that things will not break you, that they will not destroy this life forever. They will not destroy this eternal life, this spiritual life, this walk with God. You see, the temporal things will come and they will go. But what we should be seeking to develop and to grow is our spiritual life. And there is a reason why we can be joyful because our endurance is developing. But also we read over in Romans eight twenty-eight. And we're reminded that God causes everything to work together for good, um, for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. You see, as we walk through life, and I think we all know this to be true, but as we walk through life, there are some troubles that we face that the good in them is really apparent. You know, we talk about silver linings. We talk about challenges and able to say, oh, you know, but I can see that, that there's a silver lining here. I can see that um, God is going to, um, you know, do something good in this. But then there are other things that we go through that are so difficult, that are so devastating, um, that come so out of the blue that there seems to be no possibility of good coming from them. That as we journey through it, as we look at it, we can't see any, any possibility that there might be good in it. And it's into these situations that James goes on to write. If you have a look at verse five, he says, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. But when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver for a person with divided loyalty is unsettled as an unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. You see, verse 5 is really clear here. If you're searching for wisdom, you pray and you ask God, and He is good and He is loving, and He will give you the wisdom that you need. You can pray, God, I need wisdom in this situation. And that might be all you can pray in the middle of a trouble or a trial. You might say, Lord, I need your wisdom in accepting and in knowing that you are at work in this, even though I can't see it. But verse 6 stands out, doesn't it? And I think it's very easy to um, just slip over this one because it sounds a bit hard. It sounds a bit challenging. It sounds a little bit confusing. Verse 6. Sorry, Luke, can you go back? Sorry, thanks, Katie. Verse six stands out because we're told to have faith in God alone and not to waver in some versions. It actually says, when you ask, you must have faith and not doubt because James tells us that if we doubt effectively, we get nothing. And that sounds kind of impossible, doesn't it? Like when I read that, I think that might be good for those, um, you know, super saintly faith filled Christians who just have complete faith in every situation. Um, But for those of us whose faith is still budding and growing and we have our doubts and we have um, uncertainty, um, it sounds impossible. It sounds like God is good, but there's this catch on it that we have to um, seek him with complete faith and with no doubt. But it's not what is being said. It's not what's being said. You see, the term that's used here for wavering or for doubt does not translate to uncertainty. It doesn't. Translate to that. You see, God understands uncertainty. One of my um, favorite encounters, and most years we do a series called Encounters, and we just look at these snapshots of people who have met Jesus um, in the Gospels. But one of my favorite is over in Mark 9, where a man comes to Jesus and he's seeking healing um, for a family member. And he says to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, Help my unbelief. And Jesus doesn't say to him, all right, go away. And when you don't have any unbelief, then come back. And then I'll think about it. He doesn't say that at all. He has compassion on the man and he um, heals and performs that miracle in his family. And we are to come to Jesus with our doubts. And so that's not what James is saying. But what is meant here in the passage is an idea of separation. That's if we were to pull it apart and translate it, it would be separation. It means to come to God under false pretenses. And so in a practical sense, it means to come to God saying, God, I need your help in this part of my life. I'm facing this trouble. I'm facing this trial. I need you, your wisdom, and I need you to help me with it. But, knowing full well that once you've gotten me out of this mess, that I'll be okay to be back in charge, that I'll be okay to run things again, that I'll be okay to take back control of my life. Once you've just fixed this thing that I need your help with. It's that kind of approach that James is writing about here. It's that kind of uh, double-mindedness that as James says is not going to be hurt. In fact, not only will you not receive the wisdom you're looking for, but your life, and James gives it to us, your life effectively will be unstable. He uses that example of the wave of the sea that is tossed about like the wind. We know that in a practical sense, don't we? We know that if we're running to God and saying, God, just help me fix this trouble, help me fix this trial. But then once I'm out of it, I'm going to go back to this other way of living, back to this time where I've got control of my own life, where I'm in charge and I don't need you anymore. Of course, that's going to create within you a complete lack of stability because you are running back and forward, trouble and trial plenty of which of your own making, but then running back to God and saying, God, God, help me get out of this just so I can go back, ignore you again and get back to the way that things are. And it's that that James says will not be heard, not doubt, not uncertainty. We need to bring these things to God. You see, James, his ultimate call is he's calling us to live lives of practical faith. He's calling us to live lives of practical faith. And so I want to, in the last five minutes this morning, I want to just leave you with three thoughts as this opening to this book. And there are things here that I would encourage you as much as um, it's easy to walk out of here and forget about I'd encourage you to ponder these things this week. The first one is, how committed am I? And you have to answer this for yourself. How committed am I to pursuing spiritual growth? I want to encourage you to reflect on this. As we work through the next couple of months, as things come up that challenge you, as things um, are brought out of James that you find uh, a little bit uncomfortable, they make you a little bit uncomfortable in your seat. I want to encourage you to be looking at that, exploring it in depth, but wondering about the practical realities of your life. Have you arranged your life in such a way? Have you arranged the priorities and the rhythms and the routines of your life in such a way? a way that you are pursuing spiritual growth. Because many of us miss that. Many of us miss that. We get busy and we get full and we get um, kind of running from one thing to the next and um, all of a sudden our life has been ordered but it's not been ordered by us. It's been ordered by the demands around us. And I'd encourage you to think over the next couple of months, you've got a long period of time to think. I'd encourage you to think, am I committed to pursuing spiritual growth? Does the fruit of my life, does the outworking of my life, does my daily thoughts and habits and actions and words, do they reflect a transformed life? The second thing that I challenge you with is this one. Can I trust that the troubles I face are not random, but instead that God weaves all things together for my good? Can I trust that? You see, when we're caught in the midst of a trouble or a trial, it is so hard to see God's goodness. It can be so hard to believe that God is still at work, that those troubles and trials are doing us damage rather than growing us. And absolutely some of them do. They, they cause um, really difficult moments. And often we spend time healing and recovering and those, that's really important. You see, James isn't saying ignore it. He's not saying that at all. He's not saying forget troubles and trials. He's saying they will come. But when they come, take confidence that God is able to work those things for your good, that He is able to grow you out of them, that that your faith is being tested and it is being tested, it is growing so that your endurance grows so that at the end of your days on this earth, that you'll enter the kingdom. Because your faith has been strong, because you have been able to follow Christ. Because that is the eternal life, isn't it? That is the eternal life. You see, it's easier in times when we're not facing troubles and trials to begin building and equipping that in our lives. Begin building that and equipping that. And one of the things is by being completely sure of our salvation. We'll talk in week five of this series about the fact that James is not preaching a gospel of works. Some people read it and they misunderstand it and they think James is saying you have to do these things to be saved. He's not saying that at all. He's saying once you've been transformed, then, then order your life in this way, then seek God, then be living transformed. And so as in those times where you are not facing troubles and trials, I would encourage you to be growing to be seeking to be pursuing God to be filling your life with good things with God's truth so that when those things come the default is not the lies of this world it is not the confusion in your mind the default position is the truth of God's word and the last thing this morning is when I'm faced with troubles that don't make sense what's my response when I'm faced with troubles that don't make sense what is my response because, James says to us very clearly, we are to ask God for wisdom in the midst of them. It seems apparent to me, and, and having seen um, Christians go through troubles and trials, there are often two responses. The one response, um, that I've, one response that I've seen is that some face difficulty and they just get really angry at the circumstances. They get really angry at God. They get really angry that they've, um, God uh, has allowed these things to happen or that you know, God has made these things to happen. We tend to kind of put those things on God. And, and I've seen people do that. And as their anger has, and bitterness has taken hold in their life, they've pulled away from Christian community. They've pulled away from God. They've pulled away from living lives of faith because of the difficulty of their struggles and the fact that it just doesn't make sense. And the other perspective, the other response that I've seen is the complete opposite. You see, some people, when they face troubles and trials, they do the opposite. They actually um, accept that they might not understand them, but they push into God. They push into community. They get alongside um, brothers and sisters in the faith who can encourage them, who can lift them up, who can journey with them, who can walk alongside them, who can speak truth the truth of God's word into their moments of doubt. There are some who do that. And in in doing that, they're able to, I guess, walk that path of knowing that while it's confusing and it doesn't make sense, that God hasn't changed and that he is still sovereign, that he is still sovereign and he is still good. And you see, I've seen those responses. And consistently, when you run into those people down the track, When you run into those people who have faced a a challenge and a trial and some who have um, run away from God and some who have run to God, you know that the person consistently who is still three, four, five years down the track, still bitter, still angry, still upset, is the one who has run from God. And the other person is more often than not full of joy full of a life surrounded by community, full of a life still being lived, pursuing spiritual growth. And I know for me, which one of those I want, because we know troubles and trials will come, but we know that when we seek God, that he's good, that he is sovereign, and that in a community like this, that there are people who will journey with you, who will walk alongside you, who will pick you up when you're down, and will speak truth into your life. And that's an incredible encouragement, isn't it? Let's pray. Lord God, we uh, thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this book uh, that we're going to spend the next couple of months um, pulling apart and unpacking. Lord, we um, thank you that it is challenging, that there are bits of it that are hard. Um, Lord, but we thank you that every part of it is life-giving. And so, Lord, we just pray that as we Pull it apart, um, Lord, and as we seek to understand it, Lord, that you would build within us a heart that pursues you. Lord, you'd build within us hearts that are hungry for spiritual growth, that are um, seeking to um, not be the same in a year as we were last year. Lord, but to be closer to you, for our faith to be stronger in you, to have a, a better understanding of who you are, to have a life that f- that's the fruit of our lives reflect more and more of your goodness. And so, Lord, that is our prayer, Father, as we work through this series together. Lord God, that you would challenge us, that you would prompt us, as we read the words um, of James, inspired by your Holy Spirit, to live lives completely transformed. Lord God, that we wouldn't walk out of here after each service Lord, thinking that we've heard a good word but not seeing any difference in our lives. And so, Lord, help us to bridge that gap. Help us to have lives and hearts and spirits that are seeking you, Lord, and seeking to reflect you in our our day-to-day. And so, Lord, we pray for that. Lord, we pray particularly this morning, Lord, for those who might be facing troubles or trials in this moment. Lord, we thank you that your word says that we should come to you for wisdom and that you will give it to us Lord we thank you that your word doesn't say that we have to be perfect in our faith otherwise you won't do anything for us Lord that it doesn't say that at all but rather we see that demonstration time and time again that we're to bring our doubts and our uncertainties to you Lord but that Father we would give over control of our lives Lord that we would in those parts of our lives where we're still holding on too tight Father, we would hand them to you. And Lord, we would say, give us wisdom. Lead us, Lord. Father, we pray for comfort. We pray that we would be people that when troubles and trials come, Lord God, because we know they're going to come. Father, that we would push into you, that we'd push into community. Lord God, that we'd push into your word, that our prayer life would, would go up or not, Father, so that we can be comforted as we journey those things, so that we can be surrounded by the the body of Christ as we journey those things. Oh God, that we would come out the other side, being able to testify to a growing faith. We pray these things in your name.